Our next scripture lesson is one of the preeminent lessons of scripture from the 22nd chapter of Genesis. I'll be reading verses 1 through 19. If you have your own Bible with you, I encourage you to follow along as I read or use a pew version of the Bible. Genesis 22, 1 through 19. Let us listen for the word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown to him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the boy, and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage that we have just listened to is certainly one of the central passages in all of the scriptures, but also one of the most troubling, one of the most haunting to me personally, maybe to you as well. If I were ever tempted to do what uh, Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson did with respect to the Bible, to cut out those portions of the Bible that he found objectionable or offensive in some way, this is where I'd start. <clears throat> I'd choose with this, this passage from Genesis 22. Where a command comes to Abraham as he's camping in the wilderness of Beersheba at night. He has a vision. He hears the voice of God commanding him 
to take his young son. The son that he and Sarah had been hoping and praying for forever. And sacrifice him on the mountain that God would reveal to Abraham. In Judaism, this passage is called the Akita. It is one of the central passages for Jews. It is read every Jewish New Year on Rosh Hashanah. It is read every morning service in the Jewish liturgy. And I have avoided this passage for many, many years of my ministry. Nate Sell told me after the early service that rabbis in rabbinical school are told not to try to preach on this text till they're at least 40 years old. As if maybe you need some life experience to look at this text. Or maybe you need your children to be teenagers before you could ever consider such a thing. I don't know. <clears throat> but at any rate, it's interesting that they're advised not to try to interpret this passage to their people till they have a little life under their belt, so to speak. In 1974, Tita and I were living in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, studying and working and we had a break between semesters, and so we decided we would go and visit the continent and see as much of the continent of Europe as we could in a week's time. But we got to the Netherlands, and we never left it. We just found so much to do there, so much to experience. And one of the things we did was to go to the little village of Delft, where for hundreds of years and for generations, they have been manufacturing this beautiful, primarily blue and white pottery they also make a lot of tiles that I've seen in many kitchens. They're the backsplash uh, behind the counter. And one of the things they do with these tiles is they have biblical scenes on them. And so I saw a scene featuring the Akita. It showed Abraham with his knife upraised about to slay his son Isaac on the altar that he had con constructed. And Tita said to me, do you really like that story? And I said, no, I can't stand it. It's my least favorite passage in all of the scriptures. But it's also in the scriptures. So I know that one day I'm going to have to deal with it and try to make sense of it for those of us who are followers of Christ. And what is more, my appreciation for this story even diminished when I looked at how the book of Hebrews deals with it because the writer of Hebrews holds this up as one of those two great historic acts of faith on Abraham's part. First, that he was willing to get up and leave his country to go to a land that he'd never seen. And secondly, and perhaps most importantly, that he was willing to obey the voice of God. That he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's even presented as if Abraham in this instance should be a model for us as followers of Christ, a mentor for us. But this is what bothers me about it. I know full well that if God chose to test me in this way, that I would fail miserably. And if the question in this text is, do I love God enough to kill my child? The answer is no. Now, some may consider that blasphemous. I don't think God does. I think God can take my honesty better than he can take my hypocrisy or my pretense so God can look into my heart he already knows what I'm thinking and feeling so God knows you may not know as congregation maybe this will bother you to hear your preacher say this but I'm trying to be as honest I can, as I can be with this text before us I am shocked not only by Abraham's decision to obey this command 
But I'm shocked by God's action that he would demand such a thing. But here it is in scripture. What are we going to do with it? How do we make sense of it for us and for our lives? What does God reveal here? This morning, I just don't want to stir your thinking. I want to tell you some options out there, and you may accept none of them, or you may come up with another. But these are some of the ways people have tried to understand this text. And maybe one will speak to you. One way of trying to interpret the text, some scholars see this as a divine strategy for teaching God's children that child sacrifice, filicide, killing your own child is never acceptable. And that's why God stops and doesn't allow this action to take place. This was a customary practice in ancient cultures and religions of the Middle East, the Near East. The Jews were surrounded by people who practiced this. When you're reading the scriptures and you see a reference to allowing the children to pass through the fire, that's what it's talking about, child sacrifice. This occurs in Abraham's life, but this is before Moses. This is before the law is given. Abraham, as the founder of Judaism, is still trying to learn and grasp who is this God and what does this God require of us? This is before the prophets who warned of child sacrifice time and time again. It is before the a prophet Micah declared in those verses that called us, uh, called us to worship this morning. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. No. He has showed you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Child sacrifice may have been a common thing among some religions of the world. But God found it offensive and unacceptable. Maybe Abraham is just learning this. This may be the first time this lesson is brought home to the people of God. The first time that Abraham learns that God himself will provide in the time of need. Be it a lamb caught in the thicket or a lamb on a cross. The ages have been cursed with too many religious zealots, religious fanatics who take innocent life in the name of God. God won't stand for that. And so consistently throughout the scriptures, God forbids child sacrifice, especially as a measure of lo love for him. Still other interpreters see this story as a way of showing that God's word and God's will is to be valued above anything else, family, friends, wealth, whatever. We obey God first and foremost. This seems to be the implication of verses 15 and following. Preachers have been known to speculate through the years that maybe after the child of promise finally arrived and Isaac was born, Abraham perhaps began to attach more significance to Isaac than he did to Yahweh, to value the gift more than the giver, and to think that his future and his welfare depended more upon Isaac than it did upon Yahweh, his God. 
I've already said that uh, this interpretation still bothers me. I, I find it offensive, unthinkable. It creates an unthinkable ethical dilemma, if you will. It's a contradiction in terms. We might say an ethical oxymoron. Would I obey God if God asked me to disobey him? That's what it comes down to. Knowing that God forbids child sacrifice and hates it, what if God orders me to do it? Who do I obey? How do I obey? Is it ever justifiable to do an immoral thing in the name of morality? Yet another way of looking at this text. This kind of goes against the grain of Christian interpretation through the years, but something about it speaks to me and speaks to that revulsion I feel when I consider taking the life of my child. And that interpretation from Judaism is that this test for Abraham may be a test that he failed, that he didn't pass. It was a spiritual test. But perhaps Abraham failed the test. How so? Well, at least that's the interpretation of Hebrews too. By faith we read in Hebrews 11, Abraham was put to the test and offered up Isaac. But many Jewish interpreters say, well, that is a test. But Abraham didn't pass the test. He failed to challenge God. He failed to intercede on behalf of his own son. To protest what God is asking him to do. Killing his child. Remember just a few chapters prior to this in Genesis 18. Abraham intercedes on behalf of the Sodomites. The, Sodom, the people of Sodom. Because God said he's going to destroy that wicked city. And Abraham will have nothing, none of it. He protests the slaughter and keeps bargaining with God. If you find only so many people who are righteous there, are you still going to wipe out the whole city? Finally it comes down, if there are ten righteous people in Sodom, will you spare the city? And God says yes. So Abraham is willing to intercede on behalf of the people of Sodom, negotiate and argue and complain uh, to God. But where are his protests now? With his own son. Does he fail to distinguish between sacrifice and dedication? Does he fail to understand that we dare not take innocent life, especially in the name of God? Rabbi Riskin, I read an article by him and talking about uh, the Akita, the as it is called, and how it's interpreted. And he said that's a popular interpretation in Judaism, that Abraham failed the test. And there's even evidence for that in the text because after this, God never speaks to Abraham again. Not directly. Even in this instance, it's an angel that has to speak and cease the slaughter of Isaac. So from this point on, Abraham's career begins to fade. He and God never have an encounter. I called a Jewish rabbi, a friend of mine, when I was working on this, and I asked him, is that really a popular interpretation among Jews for this passage of Scripture? He says, yes, it is. That this was a breaking point in Abraham and God's relationship. And not only that, he said, but also a break in the relationship 
between him and his son Isaac. Because also after this event, Isaac and God never speak directly. Abraham, I'm sorry, Isaac and Abraham, father and son, never speak directly to each other. Now, I've not explored that myself, but that's what I was told anyway. But I guess this interpretation appeals to me because it recognizes the revulsion I feel when I consider as a father taking the life of one of my children. I can tell you the most difficult decision we ever had to make as parents were whether we would disconnect the respirator last year. Knowing that it was in our son's best interest. Knowing there was no way for him to recover. Knowing it was even what he would want. It was a hard decision. But how could someone justify planning to take the life of an innocent child? It's beyond me. Is there any other way of reading this text? Well, there are several ways, really. One way of interpreting the text is that Abraham consented to go through the test because he knew full well that God would not allow Isaac to die. He even tells his servants, we will be back in three days. It's plural, we. Although at the end of the story, we're not told that Abraham resides with, that Isaac resides with Abraham, but only Abraham stays in Beersheba. But anyway. Abraham knew that the Lord would provide. Was he so convinced of that that he was willing to go through the actions as if he were going to take the life of his son Isaac? There's yet another way of looking at this which speaks to me. It gives meaning and relevance and transforming significance to the power of this story. What if in this story we are to identify not with Abraham the father but with God the Father. What if this story is not to teach us or cause us to wonder or speculate about what was going on in the heart and mind of this parent, but rather the heart and mind of another parent? Does this story force us to recognize the cost of our own redemption and salvation? Because 2,000 years later than this, on that same mountain of Moriah, now called Golgotha, God would have to give up his son for the likes of you and me. What kind of justice, what kind of sense does that make? You and I may not be called upon to sacrifice our children, and yet God had to decide whether he would consent to allow his only begotten and beloved son to die for God's wayward children like us and so many others around the world. As we go through the season of Lent, I hope we ask that question. What did our redemption cost? What did it cost our heavenly father to bring us back to himself? And how do we respond to such extravagant and incredulous love? The hymn writer perhaps put it best, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all.
as we journey once again to Moriah for that other sacrifice necessary for your salvation and mine. Let us keep ever before us the incredible love of our Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.